Welcome to Truth Be Told Radio. I'm going to get started with the lesson. This is John MacArthur and the Lord's Vengeance Part 4 here on Truth Be Told Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never connected to Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other, Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to noneother at gty.org. That's noneother at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2019. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. I want to take us back just for a moment to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It it really sort of weighed heavy on my heart that this particular portion speaks about a Jesus that most people, even so-called Christian people, are not familiar with. This is the Lord Jesus mentioned in verses 7, 8, and 9. The Lord Jesus, who will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. This is the Jesus that few people know. The one who will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, do not obey the gospel, And they will pay the penalty of eternal ruin away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power defines that punishment. The familiar Jesus that people um, know is the one that's all love and forgiveness and mercy and kindness. The same Jesus uh, is going to return as we have been learning. And when He returns, He returns in fiery, furious judgment. I think it's important for us to understand that our Lord Jesus is holy, holy. That is exactly the word that I want you to think about. When he was to be born, the angel announced in Luke 135 that he would be a holy child. At his baptism, his father from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The writer of Hebrews says about him and his life, chapter 7, verse 26, he is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners. In Luke 4, the demons confess, I know you, the Holy One of God. The Apostle Paul writes at the beginning of the book of Romans that God raised him from the dead to demonstrate his holiness. And in his death, 
He was a lamb without blemish and without spot. According to 2 Corinthians 4, 6, He is the glory of God in human form. According to Hebrews chapter 1, He is the exact representation of God. He is the image of God. It is important for us to understand Jesus as God. And to help us with that, I want to take you back to Isaiah 6. And in this chapter, particularly in verse 3, we hear the seraphim calling out to one another in an antiphonal way, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The holiness of God must be recognized as the essential character of God. All His attributes come together to become His holiness. A.A. Hodge, great theologian, said, The holiness of God is not to be conceived as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the concept of God's consummate perfection and total glory. It is His infinite moral perfection crowning his infinite intelligence and power, his infinite moral perfection is the crown of the Godhead. Holiness is God's total glory crowned. Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritans, said, Holiness is the most sparkling jewel of God's crown. It is the name by which he is known. In an American Puritan of sorts, R.L. Dabney said, Holiness is to be regarded not as a distinct attribute, but as a result of all God's moral perfections together. And in Isaiah 57, 15, we read this, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, and here's what he says, My name is holy. It is holiness that God chooses as His name. It identifies Him more than any other attribute. In other words, to say that God is holy is verbal shorthand for summing up who He is. And who He is primarily is the Eternal One who is forever separated from sin and evil. That is to say, God is not like us. The word for holy in the Old Testament, kadash in the Hebrew, means distinct or separate. In the New Testament, the Greek word means essentially the same thing. He is separate from evil, separate from sin, and separate from sinners. God is other than we are. Nothing and no one that God has created is like Him. He is incomparable, incomprehensible, unfathomable, inexpressible, unspeakable, infinite, holy perfection. And that is why He chooses holiness for His name. Exodus 15:11. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one like you. Habakkuk 1:13. Your eyes are not able to approve evil. 
You are too pure, and you cannot look on wickedness. Job 34.10, Far be it from God to do wickedness, to do wrong. 1 Peter 1.15, I am holy. Revelation 15.4, You alone are holy. And there are many, many more statements, but those are representative of how God identifies Himself. Many, many revelations of the holiness of God are laid out in Scripture. Just to give you a few glimpses, we can see the holiness of God in creation to start with. We can go back to the book of Genesis and we see the holiness of God there. Where? In the fact that God makes something on a day, and at the end of the day, He says, He looked at it and it was what? It was good. And at the end of seven days, Genesis 1.31 God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Even man, Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made upright. He didn't create man a sinner. So you can see the holiness of God in the fact that His creation is perfect. You can see the holiness of God as well in His law. The law of God is perfect, converting the soul Psalm 19. Romans 7, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Romans 1, the gospel of God, which he promised in the holy scriptures. So the law of God, or the revelation of God in scripture, is also holy because it is a manifestation of his holy nature. You can also see the holiness of God in his judgments. All of God's verdicts, all of His adjudications from the seat of sovereign authority are holy. Listen to Genesis 18:25. Abraham says, Far be it from you to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? 2 Timothy 4:8 says, The Lord, the righteous judge. God is just and righteous and only just and righteous. So you can see the holiness of God in creation, in revelation, in His judgments, and you can even see it in heaven. Glimpses of heaven reveal the holiness of God. For example, in Revelation 4, 8, heaven's inhabitants do not cease to say, holy, holy is the Lord God who was and who is and who is to come. You can see the holiness of God throughout the revelation of God in many more places than those. But those are markedly important ones. Now, perhaps the most striking and startling vision of the holiness of God is in Isaiah 6. So let's go there. The seraphim in verse 3 say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We're all familiar with that. Most of us have sung holy, holy, holy for years. That's called the trihagion. may well mean holy is the Father, holy is the Son, and holy is the Spirit. It certainly means that holiness is the primary description of God because no other attribute of God is ever repeated three times. Nowhere does it say He is love, 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 wisdom, 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 but it does say He is holy, holy, holy. 
Now, what is the context for this? The context is very important, so go back to chapter 5 for a moment. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, and God calls on him to warn them about their sins. They are a very, very sinful people. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, Isaiah actually begins his prophecy with a revelation from God. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Again, there's His name, the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil. You are sinful, corrupt people. And Isaiah's message is to say to the people, you must repent because if you don't, judgment is coming in the form of the Babylonian army to slaughter you and take people captive and bring an end to the current nation of Judah for the time being. In chapter 5, the Lord reveals to Isaiah some very, very specific things. Specific sins of Israel for which the nation will be judged. But before those sins are actually spelled out, the chapter 5 begins with a parable. It's kind of a funeral dirge. It's a, it's a very sad song. It's a eulogy in the form of a parable. Let me read it to you. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around and removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. So here is a very sad situation. In the days of Isaiah, the strong hills of Judah were beautifully terraced uh, for vineyards. The valleys for grain, the hillsides for vineyards. It was a very laborious task to produce a vineyard on the side of a hill. You pulled out all the rocks and there were many and you used those very rocks to build terraces. Every citizen in Judah was familiar with these beautiful vineyards terraced all over the hills of Judah and they understood how hard the farmer worked to make the product that they so much delighted in the luscious grapes. Everybody knew that the effort was expected to bring a high return because this was, after all, the land of milk and honey. And the work, though difficult, would yield a good crop. Every Judean could understand then the frustration of this parable, of doing everything you could possibly do 
and having nothing but bu'ushim is the Hebrew word, bu'ushim, sour berries that are inedible, worthless ones at the end of verse 2. Worthless ones. Now, of what is he speaking in this parable? Go to verse 7. Here's the explanation. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant, thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. The whole parable is a parable of the Israelites, of the kingdom of Judah. And go back a little bit. What God did for them when he planted them. He planted them in a very fertile hill, the land of milk and honey, in the, the wonderful, unparalleled land of Israel. He dug it all around, removed the stones. That is to say, he removed the Canaanites. He planted it with the choicest vine. Abraham's descendants were a noble people, and the Jews are still a noble people even this far down the road in history. Built a tower in the middle of it. A tower in a vineyard would be to make sure you had somebody watching so that no one harmed the vineyard. Jerusalem was the tower in the vineyard of Judah, the capital where God put His name and watched over His people. A wine vat was placed there, perhaps referring to the sacrificial system. But God did everything He could do, and all that they produced were sour berries. So he asked some rhetorical questions. What more could I have done? Answer, nothing. Why, when I expected good grapes, verse 4, did it produce worthless ones? There's no answer. This was Israel, given the law, the prophets, the covenants, the adoption, the scriptures, the promise of the Messiah. All of that, and they produced nothing but sour berries. And so judgment is pronounced as the owner of the vineyard in the parable literally obliterates it, removes its hedge or protection so that it will be consumed by animals, breaks down its wall, making it vulnerable, becomes trampled ground, laid waste, never pruned, never hoed, briars and thorns come up, and a curse of no rain is pronounced on it. Why all of this? Because God looked for justice and found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, tzedakah, and instead a cry of distress, se'ekah. A simple play on words to say God should have expected one thing, got something else. So here is the dilemma. God is about to judge Israel. But he's not just speaking in general terms. He gets very specific, and I, I'll go through this rapidly, but it's very important. Starting in verse 8, he pronounces woe on them. It's an onomatopoeic word in, in Hebrew or even in English. Ay. You got it. It means to curse or damn or consign to judgment. And he penetrates into the sins of Israel and names them. 
Number one is grasping materialism. Verses 8 to 10, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room, so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn, Surely many houses shall become desolate, even great, and fine ones without occupants. For ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine, and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain. Insatiable greed, landowners who literally oppressed others, to increase their riches, wealthy, wealthy men ruthlessly acquiring property, squeezing out the poor and the helpless, and then making them buy at inflated prices, hoarding their possessions. When God is through with them, all those great houses will be desolate. They'll be empty. There won't be anybody in them. And all those great fields will produce what essentially is Famine conditions, 10 acres would produce 4 gallons of wine. 48 gallons of seed would only produce 4.8 gallons of edible result. Those are famine conditions. Israel has become so materialistic that God is going to judge them right at the point of their materialism. And that happened when the Babylonians came. Another sin is mentioned starting in verse 11, beginning with the same word woe, pronouncing doom on them. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute and by wine, but they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands. Probably the work of his hands, meaning their physical bodies, they, they engage in drunken pleasure-seeking to the point of, of basically destroying their own bodies. Self-gratification, good time Charlies, these are the people who literally live for the party. Second sin is drunken pleasure-seeking. They're characterized by dissipation. Verse 13, Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Their honorable men are famished. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it. All of a sudden, for the drunken pleasure seekers death like some massive monster opens its mouth and swallows them up. The Lord of hosts, verse 16, will be exalted in judgment and the holy God will show Himself holy in righteousness. Then, after they're all gone, lambs will graze as in their pasture. Only strangers will be there eating in the waste places of the wealthy. Drunken pleasure-seeking will lead to divine judgment. The third woe comes in verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work, that we may see it. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel again, always identified as the Holy One, let it draw near and come to pass that we may know it. What this describes is defiant sinfulness. People laden with so much sin, they can't carry it on their own back. It's like they were a beast of burden dragging around a cart. 
so much sin they have to have a trailer to carry it around in. And it's defiant. Speaking of God, they say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it. Let him do anything if he, if he wants to. Presumption, defiance toward God, defiantly, literally taunting God. Go ahead, God, if you don't like it, stop me, kill me. Grasping materialism, drunken pleasure-seeking, defiant sinfulness in Israel. The fourth one is moral perversion, verse 20. What are those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? Just reversing of all morality, moral perversion, overturning all values, all morals, mocking what is good, exalting what is evil. This is the reprobate mind of Romans 1. This was going on in Israel. Verse 21, another woe, arrogant conceit. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Having rejected God, they have the smirk of self-congratulation. They have become their own gods, professing themselves to be wise and rejecting God. They become fools. And all of this flourishes because of the sixth woe, corrupt leadership. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine. The word heroes means elevated people, leaders. And valiant men or mighty men, again, refers to men of renown in mixing strong drink. And then these leaders who are into drunkenness also justify the wicked for a bribe. They're crooked, they're corrupt, they can be bribed, and they take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. This is corrupt leadership. Perverting justice by drink and by bribery. So this is Israel. These are their sins. And verse 24 gives their judgment. Therefore, as the tongue of fire consumes stubble, as dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. When you despise the Holy One of Israel, you come under furious divine judgment. Verse 25, on this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against His people. And he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all of this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. And so he will lift up a standard to a distant nation. He will whistle for the Babylonians to come, and they will come with arrows, verse 28, that are sharp and bows that are bent. And the hoofs of their horses are like flint and chariots, wheels like a whirlwind. They roar like a lioness, like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to deliver. And they will growl over the land of Judah in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. So the chapter ends with divine judgment fulfilled in the captivity. What kind of God does this? What kind of God reacts? Well, we already had preview after preview after preview in what I just read you, the Holy One, the Holy One, the Holy One, the Holy One. Isaiah is profoundly affected by this vision in chapter 5. So in chapter 6, he goes to the temple. And I believe that's where this vision occurred. And it's the year that King Isaiah died. 
King Uzziah had been monarch in Judah for 52 years. 52 years. He was sort of a symbol of um, security, peace, tranquility. As long as he was alive, even though the people were into these sins, deep down into these sins, as long as he was alive, it was as if God was not sufficiently offended to frighten them. And then Second Chronicles 26, 16 says that Uzziah, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. It was lifted up to his own destruction because he transgressed against the Lord God and went into the temple and burned incense on the altar. He was a king, but he wasn't a priest. And immediately upon that, he was hit by leprosy and was isolated until he died a horrible death. And now the nation stands on the brink. The symbol of God's favor is dead, killed by God. And Isaiah is fearful for what's about to come. So he goes to the temple and God reveals himself to him. I think he's looking for God and God finds him. I saw the Lord, he says. And the good news is I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. There's the good news. Isaiah might have thought things were so bad that somebody else had taken the throne. Somebody else had removed God and put himself in that throne. No, the Lord is there, and he is high and lifted up, lofty and exalted, and the emanating glory that flows from him fills the temple in the vision. This is the vision of God. He sees seraphim above him in a standing position, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, that even the angels cannot look upon the glory of God. With two he covered his feet, the place wherein those angels were is so holy. And with two he hovered. They hover like celestial helicopters waiting to be dispatched to do their duty that God sends them to. And one of those seraphim who guard the holiness of God calls out to another and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And now we're getting a picture that God is still on the throne. He is absolutely on the throne. He is still sovereign. And the reason all of this is about to happen is because he is holy. He is holy. You cannot tamper and rebel against holy God. He is holy. Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. And in the vision, verse 4 says, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. It's very much like Mount Sinai. Isaiah, in his vision, is standing before a supernatural heavenly volcano erupting. And that volcano is God. And God is furious. God is angry. And God is warming up the judgment machine. 
In the presence of that, Isaiah is just devastated. He says in verse 5, woe is me. He knows what woe means. He just said it six times. I'm damned, I'm doomed, I'm cursed, I'm destroyed, I'm ruined. The, the verb ruin means to collapse, disintegrate, fall apart, perish, be destroyed. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. Why does he say that? Because the most common place where your depravity shows up is out of your mouth. There are a lot of things you don't do, but there's nothing you can't say. This is where he gets in touch most frequently with his wretchedness. I'm a man with a dirty mouth. I'm ruined. I live among a people of dirty mouths. Why are you saying that? I'm saying it because I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've had a vision of God, and what did I see? Holy, holy, holy. And what do I see about myself? Sin, and only sin. He's devastated. He's absolutely crushed. He's disintegrating. It might be the end. He thinks it is. And then an amazing thing happens in verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me, with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. My. Why did that happen? Why? Why, why, why did that picture of salvation happen? And by the way, the altar there is, is the altar of sacrifice. So from off the altar of sacrifice comes the cleansing and the forgiveness, and it speaks of a future sacrifice, of a future lamb, and a future altar, namely the cross. The seraphim puts this on his mouth because we need to understand that repentance and forgiveness is painful. But you have a confession in verse 5 that is essentially a salvation confession. He pronounces upon himself damnation, which is to say he admits he's a sinner. He admits everybody else is a sinner around him as well. And he admits that God is the King and the Lord of hosts. And he is at his mercy. And for one who is so penitent, so in touch with the reality of his own sin and so convinced of who God is, God grants salvation. And even though Christ hadn't died, every altar was a picture of the, the sacrificial lamb to come. And so the coal comes off the altar of sacrifice. And because there will one day be the final sacrifice, of the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness is available for the one who repents and believes in the King, the Lord of hosts. And uh, Isaiah is forgiven, his sin taken away. Now he's still got the same dilemma. God is furious with the nation. 
What now? Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Hmm. God is not just wrath and fury and anger. God is now looking for somebody to go warn people. Who, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Us, because God is a trinity. Then I said, and I, I don't think he mustered up a lot of bravado and a loud voice and said, Here am I, send me. I think he stumblingly, haltingly with his head down, knowing there was no one else in the vision. Here am I, send me. And the voice of the Lord said to him, Go, tell this people. You're what I'm looking for. What is God looking for in any generation, in any time? Somebody who will go and warn the world of coming judgment. Warn the world that the day is coming when the Lord Jesus will reveal Himself from heaven with His mighty angels in fire, dealing out retribution. Isaiah says, I will be that man. God says, you are. Go. And then the most stunning commission. Keep on, tell the people this. Keep on listening, do not perceive. Keep on looking, do not understand. Keep on listening and looking and looking without seeing and listening without understanding. What, what's he saying? He's saying they're so far gone that what you're going to do is pronounce judgment on them. You're going to be like Paul spoke about in 2 Corinthians, you're going to be a saver of death unto death. Verse 10, Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Whoa, what an incredible judgment on Israel. You go preach, just know this, they're not going to believe it, not going to listen, not going to repent. By the way, that same commission in verses 9 and 10 appears in the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans as an indictment against Israel, the Israel of our Lord's day. Go tell them. Go tell them what I told you in chapter 1, verse 16, go tell them, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Go tell them, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool. Go tell them, forgiveness is available. But understand that they will not listen. They are too far gone. And Isaiah, in verse 11, asks the appropriate question. He says, Lord, how long do I do that? That seems useless. How long do I do that? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Do it until there's no person left to tell. Until there's no person left to tell, keep warning them. Keep warning them. Keep warning them. Tell them the truth. Why would I do that? Because the promise comes at the end. Verse 13. 
there will be a tenth portion in it. That's the doctrine of the remnant. The masses won't believe like they didn't when Jesus came and came in His own, His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, He gave the authority to become the children of God. There's a tenth, and the, the language is a little bit difficult here in Hebrew, but essentially there's a stump. When the tree is hacked down in judgment, there's going to be a stump, and the holy seed is that stump. Why do we go and preach? Why do we go and proclaim the gospel in the midst of the rejection that we face in the world at any time, whether it was Isaiah or Jesus or even us today? Why do we do that? We do that because there is a holy seed. There is a remnant, and they have to hear. How, how can God do this? How can this happen? How can there be a holy seed? How can salvation come? By, by whom? Look at chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. How can this happen? Emmanuel is coming. Virgin born Emmanuel will come. Emmanuel means God with us. And when our Lord Jesus was born, that's exactly what the angel said. Call his name Emmanuel to fulfill. Isaiah 7:14 Behold the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. God is coming in the form of a baby. And then chapter 9 and verse 6 another reference to the child. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And Luke tells us that when the child came, he will be great, Luke one thirty two, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the reason that Isaiah could be forgiven. But there's one other passage that I want to show you. It's in John 12. John 12. And this brings us to the appropriate culmination. In John 12, our Lord is, of course, in the midst of His coming to the end of His ministry. And it's very clear that people are rejecting Him. And John tells us in verse 38 that their rejection fulfills the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? That 
prophecy in Isaiah has been fulfilled. They don't believe. They don't believe. They don't accept the revelation. That prophecy is the reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, and here's a quote from Isaiah 6, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, be converted, and I heal them. This generation that heard Jesus is just like Isaiah's generation. They're too far gone. And God has blinded them. But notice verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who's that? The Lord Jesus Christ. We know that from the next verse. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but they were not confessing him. He's talking about Christ. What is he saying? That Isaiah saw Christ. That terrifying trauma. That horrific, frightening vision. That judgment that was so devastating that only a few would survive. That is not just God the Father, who is holy, holy, holy. That is the Son. Isaiah saw the Son of God. Don't think for a moment that there is in the Old Testament some God of wrath from whom Jesus saves you. Jesus is that God. And He must be dealt with with the same kind of seriousness that we would deal with God the Father. Jesus will come in the way that Isaiah saw God, like a volcano erupting in flaming fire to bring retribution on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Don't kid yourself about Jesus being a benign teacher who loves everybody. John says Jesus himself pronounced judgment on the generation of his own day and said that judgment pronunciation was a fulfillment of Isaiah 6 prophecy. Jesus came once, meek and lowly. He's coming again, this time in fierce judgment. That is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians is warning us. He will come. He will be revealed, unveiled. And for those who do not believe in Him, have not repented and come to Him, retribution. For those who belong to Him, what? What's the word? Relief. Rest. Eternally. Our Father, again, it's been a wonderful morning for us. We, we desire to honor You in every way. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for the altar of sacrifice on which Christ paid the penalty for our sins in His own body. Thank You for touching our lips and making us clean and forgiving our sins. 
We are just beyond grateful, beyond hopeful. We can't even describe how wondrous it is for us to be forgiven, cleansed, and even sent for as long as there's somebody to talk to to tell people that judgment is coming, but salvation is available. May we be faithful to proclaim that message until our Lord comes to deal out retribution to those who do not obey the gospel, but to bring eternal relief and rest to those who do. Thank you for giving us salvation so that we don't fear his return. We long for it. We rejoice in it. I pray, Lord, that you would reach down and save sinners even in our midst this morning. That you would take someone out of the category of retribution into the eternal category of rest from hell to heaven. Through awakening their recognition of their sinfulness, producing repentance, opening their minds to understand the glorious gospel of Christ who died in their place and embracing Him as Savior and Lord, they would pass from death to life. That's our prayer. Thank you for that gift to us. Grant it for your glory to others even this day we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful 
just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean but my God is immutable? Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. When I think about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies, still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever this grace, it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. We're all one race. This is Ken Ham, editor of the popular series of books, The Answers Book for Kids. Many people don't realise that Charles Darwin's The Descent of Man was a racist book. Now, Darwin claimed that Caucasians are the most highly evolved, and he called other people groups low, savage, and degraded. He certainly didn't invent racism, but Darwin's ideas seemed to give a biological defence for it. When scientists mapped the human genome, they confirmed we're all one race, the human race. And that's what the Bible taught all along. We're all descended from Adam and Eve, and that means we're one family, one race. Different people groups exist because of the event at the Tower of Babel. But when we start with the Bible, there's no justification for racism. Discover more about the biblical response to racism at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout
shout it to you like the loudest Rupert Christ brought us up from out the sewer We don't have to doubt the future Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship You asking the purpose Partly to fetch hats from the furnace To Jesus extravagant service Immaculate purchase He was smashing the serpent And we only scratching the surface He's the seed that was conceived In the womb of a virgin The sun emerges in the manger While the angels serenade him It's the birth of the Savior The greater and became a man Came as a lamb and would be executed To execute the plan to substitute the sand in the place of the wicked on the cross he was lifted But we considered him stricken and afflicted Just like the prophets predicted He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent And lay down his life to offer atonement He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis Of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious Splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend Independent of space and time But presently present, suspending the heavens With speech from coast to coast He speaks peace to wind and seas Got heavenly hosts easily posted on bended knees Controls the cosmos with the most Authority, so we both in a Exalted King Christ Supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. We can take any time in the scripture. Put the gate is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and it's bright in the might in the dominant mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the loss that he found, though. He was tamed and flossed all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the crown. Yo, Satan had a choke hold on him. Fight for the rope, but dope and then. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the end. That's what we hoping in. Risen on his spell check. The risen king can rinse clean. The most rebellious. I was hell bound. Now I'm spellbound. Word is born. I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout. I was bought with a price. We got a hope that won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly Proportionate, everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son, preeminent the name, par excellence, prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see, the father of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's part of we, a pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey from sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't. Acknowledge him properly You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment Study the development from Old and New Testament You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age It's relevant Crisis on its center stage Forget religious sentiments The center on man But something less is what you're settling He is the most excellent Exercising benevolence And blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated That severed the relations between man and his maker And placed Christ on his costly cross and compensated his life death and resurrection emancipated and gave us freedom from it all freedom from the effects of the fall freedom from adam and eve in the garden of eden and from the law so the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised praising his name singing glory to god It's not about a young earth. This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry behind the popular Answers Bible curriculum. We spend a lot of time talking about the age of the earth. In fact, we're often described as a young earth ministry. And that's true, we are, but that's not really what we're all about. 
You see, our belief in defense of a young earth is a consequence of our belief in the authority of Scripture. We believe that the authoritative, perfect word from our Creator should be our authority, not man's ideas. And the greatest attack on Scripture in our era is on Genesis. So as we defend the truth and authority of Scripture, we end up defending the age of the earth. We want believers to boldly stand on the authority of God's Word from the very first verse. Learn more about trusting God's Word from the very first verse at AnswersRadio.com. Listen to this program again or view a complete transcript when you visit AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, Soli Deo Gloria. (laughs) It's like deja vu, right? Yo, I'm back, but nobody was asking where I've been Cause Christ in the music is no longer the hot trend Logic says, well maybe I should just stop then But I never got into this for a spot in the top ten I do this for one reason Jesus the true king, son To help God's elect obey Hebrews 3.1 And though the rap world is ever crowded If heaven allows it, I'll keep writing for the 7,000 I know you out there, I still get the emails Against the church of Christ, the gates of hell will never prevail It's founded on the rock, and the gospel never stops So we dropping the topic, whether it's popular or not Sin is not just toxic And the clock is going to stop God is not to be boxed With the wrath of God is burning hot We were locked in sin's closet Our conflict was cosmic God plotted to stop it Hit the demonic with a shot I was copping narcotics Agnostic with a plot No optics for the knowledge Of the God who often knocks Jesus rocked me with the gospel And it tied me up a notch So I hopped in a rocket And met the prophet at the top Yo That's just another way of saying I met God in the scriptures But we just going to let that breathe For a second You know what I mean The Bible says He was been forgiven much Loves much we gonna talk about BC a little bit. My depravity was total, not small like pox. I was chained to sin, I couldn't take off the locks. I thought I was a player, a mask with the flavor. So yeah, I know what the time is, but I ain't bet Isaiah. I would chuckle daily as I paid for disgrace. My eyes were always puffy like I got sprayed with mace. I would toot my horn at parties, and I would do bars. Got so intoxicated, I was ready to do Mars. Notorious for acting pretty silly in my city Philly. Friends hear about it and be like, whoa, did he really? Because I played dirty, Bill Lamb. Beer style, through great mercy, spirit filled and dear child. Went from so gritty to headed to a gold city. In Christ I shine, the world's like no biggie. Whatever time to sing, I'm putting faith on the song. 112 displayed in John, the way to respond. When his patience runs out, then it's time for the ride, man. Microwave, wrath of God, fam. That's why, because of Christ, I got mad joy. All I'm saying is, I used to be a bad boy. <laughs> But nowadays I'm regenerated, born again from above, fam. How else can I say that? Went from various vices to a kid that's married to Christ, using literary devices to spit it very precise. My conversion to the master was so dramatic. I just wanted to be an ambassador or fanatic. The gospel was my tonic. With Christ I couldn't lose, but to walk with God like Enoch, I knew I couldn't cruise. This walk is a beast, but nothing's greater than the cross. Saw the mark of the east and the raiders of the laws. While power records were choosing to carry G unit, I was on that revolutionary theme. The brothers from the Lou held it down as well But we noticed a big shift in 2012 Around the time Jackie asked me about Calvinism Christian hip-hop found a different algorithm And crossed over without taking the crossover Made us all sober years later, is it all over? Trip asked me if I was still motivated I was quiet, but I wanted to say no, I hate it Cause brothers in your camp causing lots of confusion I love them as brothers in Christ, but not their conclusions They want to reach the world by all means, keep pursuing 
doing it. But tell me, why they got to diss the church while they doing it? That's what I wanted to say, but I ain't say it, though. But no more laying low. I want them to play it slow. And I ain't dissing them. My prayers are the proof. Like Boaz without Ruth is unity without truth. CHH is like gorillas in the mist. With no brotherly love, it's like Philly don't exist. What's happening here? It's a different atmosphere. Cats appear most concerned about a rap career. Brothers overseas being slain in the sand. While we're vain in our plan, taking fame and some fans. And I ain't got time to philosophize. Satan got a plot device. I'm seeing lots of guys apostatize. On top of all that, Donald Trump's the president. It's all good though, cause Jesus Trump's the president. So more than ever, I'm trying to rep the Lord who bled. And we ain't never gonna stop working. I'm just trying to give a healthy demonstration of theocentric music for the selfie generation. See, the problem is sin, no riddle in it. Cause all sin got I in the middle of it. We're mad to praise and truly evil. We need to be born again without a Matt Damon movie sequel. In the gospel, God addresses our depravity. The lamb slain at Calvary, the depths of his agony. He rose from the grave with abundant grace. And when we come in faith, he'll bring us up from the sunken place. Our sins, decrepit depths, left the mess. No rest was left till Jesus put death to death. The beauty of the victory truly is a mystery. The cross of Jesus Christ is at the nucleus of history. Before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we've been saved on debit. Since our champion in the great war suffered, we gonna proclaim his death like the Lord suffer. So welcome to the Still Jesus Project. Yo, we just getting started and we got a lot left. Marriage, it's God's institution. This is Ken Ham, and our popular Ark Encounter attraction is located in northern Kentucky. In an evolutionary view, marriage is just a social institution, one that evolved over time. So if marriage changed in the past, it can change again as our culture changes. This kind of thinking has led to the redefinition of marriage throughout the Western world. But marriage didn't evolve, and its definition isn't determined by popular opinion. Marriage isn't ultimately a social, cultural, or government institution. Marriage is God's institution. He created marriage from the very beginning, so only He has the authority to define what it is and what it isn't. And God has clearly defined it as one man and one woman for life. Get answers to your questions about Genesis, culture, and biblical authority at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. 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 Kick it old school. Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes winds up in a pocket.
male and female. This is Ken Ham, hoping you'll visit our life-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. There's a great deal of confusion today about gender. Now, some people claim there's really no such thing. Others say gender is on a spectrum. Therefore, anyone can fall anywhere on it. But as Christians, our thinking needs to be grounded in God's word, not the ever-changing opinions of man. You see, God's word teaches that we're created male and female. We're both made in his image with equal value, though distinct and different. Gender isn't on a spectrum. While in a sin-cursed world, some people do struggle with these issues, the truth remains we're created male and female. That's not a popular message right now, but it's what God's word teaches. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. 
Millions of dead things. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis and the popular high-tech creation museum. Secular scientists reject the idea of a global flood, yet the evidence is all around us. You see, if there really was a global flood, what would the evidence be? Well, billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And you know, that's exactly what we see. Indeed, we see billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. People reject the global flood, not because of the lack of evidence, but because they don't want to believe the Bible. But the fossils we find are a tremendous confirmation of the history in God's word. A global flood would have rapidly buried billions of organisms as rock layers were laid down. Plan your visit to the popular Creation Museum near Cincinnati when you go to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Often this is interpreted to mean that we look like God. Surely you've seen paintings of God as an old man, even wearing clothes. But Numbers 23:19 says God is not man, and Jesus said in John 4:24, God is spirit. So God has no human or even physical form. Rather, to be made in the likeness of God means that we are like God, in the sense that we are interpersonal beings as God is. We've also been given dominion as God has dominion to fill the earth and subdue it. Most of all, being made in the image of God means that we are to reflect his holy and righteous character. Animals cannot make moral decisions. It is for men and women to glorify God in righteousness. Every person's life is sacred because we are all fellow image bearers of the one who made us. When we sin doing what is contrary to God's righteousness, we desecrate God's image. Romans 3.12 says, Together we have become worthless before God, good to be cast into the flames. But Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and by faith in him, we are being remade into the image of the Son to reflect the holy and righteous character of Christ when we understand the text. That's when we understand the text. And... Also known as what or WWTT on YouTube and their website WWTT.com. And here's another one. In Matthew 13, Jesus shared this parable. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, and immediately they sprang up, but the sun scorched them, and they withered since they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The disciples asked him the meaning of the parable, so Jesus said, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises, he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit because his faith is genuine. 
There are people who might appear to be Christians for a time, but when their faith is no longer convenient, it turns out to be a passing opinion. They were never truly saved. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so it might become plain they were never part of Christ's body when we understand the text.
Hirsch signing off one day. Yeah, man, it's crazy how time flies. My mind tries to sit still, thinking how does one define wise? Feels like yesterday I was a newcomer, fresh in the game, ready to make the truth thunder. But as the beat plays, they lose wonder. After a few summers, the band's ready for a new drummer. Doesn't matter if you're not ready yet. Yesterday I was a cadet, now they call me a vet. But it's part of common sense that the artist's time will end. To the young, this topic can be hard to comprehend. They don't come close to understanding How you can go from most demanded To abandoned in the ocean stranded Surrounded by the waves of your weariness Some things you only learn from age and experience And it's plain to me that all the famous men you see The time is coming when they will be a faded memory Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped Yeah, what in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is Whatever happened to so-and-so, that's what they want to know Eventually we learn that they all come and go Today's rising star, tomorrow dies with scars Today they all struck, tomorrow you washed up I remember watching Jordan's Hall of Fame speech Thinking this is what it's like to watch the lame reach and gasp As he tries to grasp what lies in the past Never to return, what lies in the past Did he tell himself, was he lost or sober? Did he know it was all but over? The moment that AI crossed him over If I could be like, didn't include dying light Let's shine the light on the one they call Iron Mike Nowadays he's known for being all weird But back in 88, nobody was more feared at the peak of his powers, his opponents would retreat in moments he would eat and devour. Snuff with punches, but we must discuss this. Crushed it just enough to trust his toughness. Pride brings us to justice. You puffed up with smugness? You gonna meet Buster Douglas. Amazing that, which blazed like Petro. The new praise that made the waves in the metro. Was praised for days, but just a phase like retro. And phase like echoes. Echoes, echoes, echoes. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is What I'm speaking on is seriously welcomed by the few Even no experience to tell you that it's true On your radio station, this won't be found on the playlist Wisdom, the sound of the stages, resounding for ages The older I get, I notice it The whole of the script, hmm, it's found in the pages A holy writ, not the cash speech of the reverence But what a man sees under heaven Ecclesiastes 111 No matter who you are, death aims to stop ya Whether banker, doctor, or Frank Sinatra before your time is done, meet the timeless one The dying, death-defying, rising, shining sun King Jesus astounds and amazes He pounded the pavement to save those who were bound to their cages So let us praise the one who made the Everglades Our debt was paid, so in glory we'll never fade Never fade, never fade
that's Shyland Pub one day and you can find him at Matmo.com, L-A-M-P-M-O-D-E dot C-O. Matmo.com, this is Rector Label, and Shailene spelled S-H-A-I-L-I-N-N-E. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Cantrell here at Trophy Toll Radio. And uh, go fish with I'll Fly Away. Oh, oh, I'm going to fly away. I'm going to fly away someday. Oh, oh, I'm going to fly away. I'm going to fly away
Love Talk Radio. 